from Caroline Molinar in Raleigh, North Carolina, in my best British accent. This is the Doctor Who Podcast. You are most welcome. In this episode of the Doctor Who Podcast, we look at a few of the uh, Davison Big Finish releases that have uh, been released this year and cast our eye over the uh, Fifth Doctor audio offerings. to another episode of the Doctor Who Podcast. Pleasure to have your company. It's been absolutely ages, seems like a lifetime, since we've talked about Doctor Who in the Big Finish audio format. And uh, I, I brought along two Big Finish superminds to discuss <laughs> a few of the Peter Davison audios here. Uh, Tom? Hello! And Leeson? Hello there. Things are going well this end. I've not been uh, described as a super brain for uh, well forever. This is a, this is a new experience for me. Brilliant. Well, it's it's it's, it's nice to be in such illustrious company. So yeah, hopefully your super brainness will rub off on me because I, I clearly am a bear of little brain today. Well, it is a pleasure to have you back here, Tom. I mean, it's been ages since you've been with us. You've been uh, gigging around the world, as it seems, and, and and doing teaching and and researching and all sorts of other things. Yeah, I, 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 seem to, I seem to have been doing everything by what I'm being, what I'm normally paid to do. So I have to, I have to work up, work on that one. Um, but yeah, it's it, it, it's it's been a busy old time. Off to off to Nashville and Memphis. I'm quite looking forward to. Should be fun. Oh, very nice, very nice indeed. Well, I, 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 see, this is the thing. I mean, it, all this all this travelling, and I take Big Finish along for company. Uh, you know, because they, they're great stories. But also, I think on the other end, I keep, I keep trying to work some sort of Doctor Who references in there. I mean, I was in uh, France a couple of weeks ago, and I saw the Eiffel Tower. So clearly, that was all City of Death. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone looking at you, going, saying, "What the heck are you talking about, Mister Tom?" <laughs> well, yeah, not not only because I was speaking in English, <laughs> but also the but also the scarf of the schoolgirl outfit weren't helping either. <laughs> so, from modern day France to deepest Calcutta in 1926 with the Emerald Tiger. Oh, Calcutta. Land of the goddess Kali, one of the world's most vibrant and popular cities. Centre of the jewellery trade. Hub of industry, commerce, science, politics, culture, education. And what have we come here for? A cricket match. Not just any old cricket match, Turlo. Today is December the 31st, 1926, and in a couple of hours, Arthur Gilligan will be leading the MCC and possibly the greatest match of the greatest tour in the history of cricket. All India versus the Marylebone Cricket Club. And where are they going to fight this legendary engagement? Right here on the platform? Oh, in one of the sidings, perhaps. The Eden Gardens are 15 minutes stroll from here. I really must have a word with the Brigadier about your education. There seems to be very little emphasis placed on sport and altogether too much prominence given to sarcasm. Don't mind him, Doctor. I love cricket. I'm afraid I find the rules rather baffling. Will you be playing yourself, like at Cranley Hall? Ah, uh, no, no. This time I'll be more of a spectator. That doesn't sound like the Doctor I know. Yes, thank you, Tegan. 
Indeed, the Emerald Tiger is our first port of call in our uh, Peter Davison Big Finish audio review. And it has the Doctor and the crew of Tegan, Turlow and Nyssa in Calcutta in 1926. Now, the Doctor is there, you know, cliche alert, to see a cricket match. He seems to spend a lot of his Big Finish audio time trying to get to cricket matches. I'm, I'm just wondering whether that's uh, a little bit too much of a cliche for our good Fifth Doctor. Um, well, in fairness, in the, in the show, it was only really referenced a couple of times. I mean, there, was, there are a few moments in the first uh, in, the, in the first season where, yes, he makes use of the cricket ball, and yes, he's uh, I think it's, is it Black Orchid he finally makes it to a cricket match. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, 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 it's nice to see... Um, the, you know that particular costume trope. Cause I don't think it's a, it's not so much a character trait, but it's nice to see that uh, referenced uh, in the uh, in, in the big in the big finish because it, it does it does kind of seat the character nicely. You know, we can't see him, but we can, it helps to imagine him in his Edwardian cricketer's uniform. Although apparently, I've heard that's nothing to do with what an Edwardian cricketer used to wear. Mm, yeah, it's, it's it's sort of a, an amalgamation of um, yeah, and it's almost in, in a way to, to justify the the, uh, the the costume a bit, and uh, you, you do hear it quite a lot in Big Finish, and you do the same with the with the Sixth Doctor. And there's barely a Sixth Doctor episode go, goes by that uh, someone on an alien planet doesn't make reference to the silly coat or you know the head <laughs> of a coat. Yeah, that, that that makes sense. I mean, it's good. It, it's good because I think it just helps helps draw that picture in the mind. Um, but but you know, but, get, but getting back to the drama, um, I, I, I liked the way it started. I, I, I loved the opening scenes in the um, uh, in the train station. It must be said, um, and, mm. and, and and you know how this works. You know, the idea is split the companions up, separate them from the TARDIS, um, and the way that it happens in this particular story is nothing short of very very imaginative indeed. I think too, even you know the the speed with which it's done in this story. I mean, I, I was listening to the first episode and looked at the counter and realised, my goodness, they have split up the companion and the Doctor very, very quickly. And that really thrusts this story into action very quickly because not only do uh, the companions and the Doctor get split up, uh, you know, they get uh, separated from the TARDIS for pretty much half the story. Yeah, which is good. I mean, because you know, the, the central problem with Doctor Who is why don't they just get back in the TARDIS and go? Um, so, you know, you have, you have to do what you can to make sure that they can't actually do that very easily. Yeah, and uh, and right from the off, I mean, this really it, it starts very well. It, it, it you you get that feeling of of where it's set. Uh, you can feel the heat of the train station. You can you can uh, all the bu- all the bustling noises, the things going on around. It does a very very good job, sound design wise, of of setting up you know where where this is going to be set and has a very Indiana Jones style feel to it at the, the beginning there. Yeah, uh, it it was a very interesting setup for me too. I I really enjoyed. Uh, pretty much all of the first episode where it kind of lost me a little bit was in the next few episodes where they started building up the different characters that were populating this particular story now now without giving too much away there are certain relationships between characters uh that are introduced to the story there's a professor in this story there's a there's a scheming older matriarch in this story uh and there is also this uh distant villain that seems to speak in voiceover for the first three episodes uh pushing the story along to a certain extent. The way that a lot of these seemingly minor characters are then thrust into the forefront through what seemed to me to be an embarrassment of coincidence can't kind of ruin the story a little bit for me because I thought what they were doing originally was setting up some really interesting characters like a, a, a main villain, a dottery professor, all, all those type of things. But then we learn more during the story that seemed to stretch... I suppose the bounds of coincidence for me a little bit. Well, I think if you if if you're a fan of literature, then uh, at the moment the character names are all revealed, then you see exactly where this is coming from. When you've got people called Forster 
for instance, and, you're, and it's a story mm. set, in, set in, in, in the Empire, then you, know, then you kind of know where it's all coming from. Um, but I've got, I've got to say, I really enjoyed the supporting performances. Um, Sherry Lungy was really very good. I think her opening scene when she's in the boat with the baby, which isn't getting too much away, I think, is really well acted. And, and I think Trevor, you mentioned about the speed that the story opens up. For my, to my, for my mind, it never really lets up. It's, you know, it, it, it tends to rattle along. And... and Although that some of the characters are from the um, the big book of Doctor Who's ca- characters, um, they are, in fairness, really well acted. I can, I can certainly point to performances in Big Finish which are less convincing than this. Absolutely, absolutely. I don't, don't get me wrong. I, I think the story does rattle along at a fantastic pace. Um, I remember being quite in, entranced by most of the third episode where they spend a lot of the time in this uh, cave system. And then the uh, caves are flooded and there's dynamite and all that sort of stuff. Um, there's, there's lots of wonderful little action set pieces in this story that keep it bubbling along. And, and there's a very big character moment for one of the companions where, you know, they basically go missing for an episode and a half, um, you know, without giving too much away again. By the time the fourth episode came together and they had to weave all these different characters together in these interesting relationships, I, I suppose one could say it, kind of lost me a little bit. I think I'm with you on that one, Trev. Um, and, and set pieces was, was the word that was uh, about to spring forth from my, my mouth. Uh, and it's, it's one of these big finish where I, I am listening to it uh, and, and I think I'm following it uh, and, I'm, uh, and I think I'm sort of enjoying it to a degree. Uh, and then, as you say, when it, when it all comes to, to, to tie up, I realise that I've, I've, I've missed so much. And maybe this is down to, uh, to, you know, to where I was listening to it. Maybe I needed to give it a bit more time. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those ones that you think you're following then you realise that you've either not followed it or it's not been plotted, you know, you know quite, quite so, quite so well as, as as it perhaps could have been. Uh, and resolution-wise, I did feel a little disappointed. Mm. It did seem, it, it did seem to be like, oh, um, the end's coming up. Let me just write the ending. But that said, Barnaby Edwards is a very good writer. It, you know, it, it, I think after such a strong story and after such a good build-up, any anything less, anything. Uh, less than a totally spectacular ending wouldn't you know wouldn't set the story terribly well. And you're right, it does fit, it does seem to sort of drop off a bit uh, quite mm. quickly. But even so, even, even still, the ride to get there is, is is well worth it. I think definitely. Yeah, and there's so much factual history in it. Uh, and little nuggets for for the people that will now, as you say, the references to Forster and uh, uh, the Empire. And it's obviously a very a subject that Barnaby has uh, is very well uh, versed in, because so much of of what is there is uh, you know is is real, and uh, and you can take away. Uh, you can come away having learned stuff, and you can also um, you can you can have fun sort of spotting references. So it's certainly well researched in in that respect. I think in its plotting is where it falls down a bit. I don't know. I mean, I've I've always understood where people come from when they say that they always found the televised Fifth Doctor to be a, you know, uh, almost light-hearted, younger type feel. But I've always been more towards the characterization of the Fifth Doctor as being, you know, quite mean to a certain extent. I mean, if you watch stories like Enlightenment, for example, he he is quite standoffish he is quite rude to tegan for example when she's being mesmerized by the events of the story um for 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 me i think the big finish characterization of him being more hard-edged and a little bit more standoffish and mean is is totally in character well the version of the davison doctor that i thought we should have really got was the one we saw in the visitation 
Um, in, in that story, he, the, you know, the character, it seems that in those first few stories of, uh, of, of his first season, he's trying out different ways of playing the character. And the one I wish he'd stuck with was, as I say, the visitation. He's, he's funny, he's absent-minded, he's very doctorish. Um, but, there's, but, but at the same, but he's also quite, what's the word? I think you said mean. He's very, he's, he's, he's quite, he's, he's kind of angry <laughs> in that one. He can be a very direct doctor i think he he's not the sort of person that suffers fools gladly he's he's always been very straightforward in what he says but i think because when he was younger he he was a lot more i don't know what pretty or sexy or whatever mm. so you know, it it was often easy to look beyond what character he was portraying by looking at the face he was portraying it with, if that makes any sense, it's I funny. Well, I was watching. Uh, I was watching something recently, uh, Fifth Doctor uh, uh, with the wife, and she. Uh, I, I turned to her. I said, "You know, there, there's more First Doctor in the Fifth Doctor than any other Doctor. You know, at, at times, there, there's, there's more of that sort of standoffishness and uh, um, and you know, irascibility in the Fifth Doctor than, than than any other Doctor that I can think of. That's why I love him so much. He's fantastic. Just, just, just an aside before we uh, move on. The the character of Major Haggard, the you know stiff upper lip uh, British officer that was uh, stationed at Calcutta, um, I had to go look at the cast list after it because I really thought the guy playing it was Peter Cook from Peter <laughs> Cook and Dudley Moore fame. He is an absolute exact voice duplicate for the man. I mean, I I really had to rub my ears and eyes and and try and not convince myself that it was Peter Cook playing the role, even though Peter Cook died in 1995. Oh, Peter yeah, Cook, as, a, as, as a Doctor Who villain, he's got to be up there with, uh, with Peter Sellers, Peter Cook, the, the best Doctor Who villains we never had. If they ever do a radio adaptation of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's life, they need to get this guy on board for Peter's role. He, he was uncanny, absolutely brilliant, but uncanny. Right, so um, the second episode in this Fifth Doctor trilogy is The Jupiter Conjunction. Have we landed yet? Yes and no. We've materialised in space. Why? Why not? I like space. Earth Solar System, 2329. And if you look at the scanner, you'll see something rather interesting in 543... Oh. Evidently it was going faster than I thought. What was that? A comet. Really? You're going to say it didn't look like a comet, aren't you? I don't know what a comet looks like. Not up close. Well, they're not balls of fire searing their way across the sky. I know, they're mostly ice. Let's land on it. Should be easy enough from here, short hop. Are we landing? Hello. Where have you been? You weren't in your bed this morning. No, I couldn't sleep, so I got up and went to the library to read. You must be tired now. No, actually. A side effect of your rejuvenation. Don't worry, it'll settle down. I was just the same after my third regeneration. Not quite a lot done. I could do with a dip in the fountain of youth myself. Now, the central conceit of this is that rather than using and in the year twenty in the year twenty three twenty nine, rather than using space freighters uh, or man-made objects to ferry uh, goods between, around the solar system, it's a lot easier for mankind just to uh, load up comets, um, which are on uh, convenient. Uh, flight paths with, uh, with with goods and people, and have them actually take uh, do the, do the hard work of moving things around the solar system, which is a brilliant idea. Now, uh, predictably, the TARDIS crew, uh, the fifth Doctor TARDIS crew, uh, arrives on a, a comet called Eight Slash Q Panica. Um, 
where, of course, everything has been going wrong. Um, large amounts of goods have been going missing, people have been going missing, and, of course, the new arrivals are ideally placed to take the blame for all of that. Now, I've got to be honest, I really liked this. Um, I remember liking it because it had a real it had a real second Doctor feel to it. Obviously, you know, we can't um, be intertextual and uh, describe Doctor Who with old bits of Doctor Who, but I really liked it. It had a really, uh, it had a great uh, claustrophobic feel to it. The characters all seemed very well developed. Um, and the leader of the colony was is played by uh, a woman called Rebecca Front, for, for whom I have a lot of affection. As, as uh, She's one of the country's leading com uh, community act uh, actors. But, getting back to the story, um, the crew split up nice and quickly. Um, it's not until episode two or three that we start to get um, a sense that there is something very, very missed going on. Um, and we have these cloud, a, 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 set of, a set of villains, or at least they appear to be villains, called the Cloud People, um, the Jovians, uh, who are, I, I've got to be honest, a, a, a great, what, 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 what strikes me as being a great early Doctor Who style, uh, style villain. Um, yeah. I, I, I think thinking back to this one, I've, I've really enjoyed it. It was great. Uh, it's a, a really good, uh, a re really good chance for uh, Tegan and Nissa, so uh, Sarah Sutton and Janet Fielding, to do some really good character pieces. Um, Mark Strickland's Turlo gets to remind us why he was t uh, why he was so good at being sneaky and and uh, uh, duplicitous. Um, and the Fifth Doctor runs around, fixes stuff, and there's a there's a great conclusion. But I don't I don't want to. Um, I don't want to describe the plot in too great a de in too great detail because there are some lovely twists and turns that are absolutely befitting old style Doctor Who. Yeah, I think I, I would I would agree with you. It, it has that 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 retro Doctor Who feel. It's I mean I'll say it. Uh, I know we're all thinking it. It's it's based under siege. It's it's that tight knit cast uh, on a spaceship, and and you have as you say that that moment where. Um, uh, the crew arrive, the TARDIS crew arrive, and they are mistakenly blamed for you know the thefts that, that are going on in the space station. And from that, the uh, the drama arises. Um, as for the, the whole overall, w whether the story worked for me, um, I don't know. It, it seemed it seemed to fall flat again on on, on a number of levels. Um, it, it relied on lots of uh, uh, lots of things that you would be familiar with from the, from this era. The, Turlow, um, they're playing up his sort of duplicitous role again. Is he or isn't he? I'm not entirely sure where the, where this is set in the in the in the Fifth Doctor's timeline. But he's still obviously uh, not. You can't be sure as to whether you can trust him or not. So so that's played up, and he has a bit of a prominent role as far as that concerned. But you know, the story itself clicks along at, at, at a fair pace. But uh, it's it's not a classic uh, in any respect. Trev, I know I, I um I, I know you haven't had a chance to to listen to this one yet. But I, you know, knowing how much you like. Um, classic Doctor Who. I think you'll enjoy this one because you know nothing is quite what it seems. You know, the um, the goodies are the goodies aren't necessarily the goodies. The baddies aren't necessarily the baddies. There's a couple of switcheroos going on. There's some great, some really strong character moments from the TARDIS crew. So um, I know you haven't had a chance to have a listen to this one yet, but when you do get a go, I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll have to let me know what you thought. If Tom thinks it's okay, then that's good enough for me. It's got the seal of approval. So what's next on the uh, Big Finish roster? I think it's the Butcher of Brisbane. Not a lot here, is there? Unless you like ruins. Source of the Zygma energy must be over the next ridge. There's a way up through here. It's too creepy. Ah! Careful. Flaming mud. Why isn't the 
21st century all space cities and monorails. That would have been the 31st. Things move on. Mainly backwards. It's truer than you think. It's another ice age. Is it? It's not snowing here. Maybe not, but the snowfields cover all of Europe and North America and reach up as far as Tasmania in the south. That's not a lot of room left. There's been a mass exodus to the colonies. Earth's been gutted of its resources anyway. It's just a factory now, processing material from elsewhere. You know what's going on, don't you? You're just not telling me as usual. Where is this exactly? A tricky bit here. Take my hand. Got it. Thanks. No, I, I just don't like Zygma energy. Did that cause all this? It's not easy to explain. Nissa could explain if she was here. You don't live so far from Brisbane, do you? I live a, a stone's throw from Brisbane, and, and that's what made this story interesting from the outset for me. Just, just, just the title alone made me want to listen to it. And then again, wanting to listen to it because it's a kind of a prequel to the fourth Doctor story, Talent of Wen Chiang. It, it's kind of, if someone asked the question, how did Magnus Greel get to 19th century Earth? Then hmm. the Butcher of Brisbane gives you that answer. See, I, I, I liked this. Um, the only thing that was through me was um, which threw me generally was Nissa's behaviour. <laughs> I, I don't know if either of you like to comment on that. would kind of agree with you. I, I enjoyed this story. Nissa and Turlow were interesting characters because they, they, they kind of play a double role in this story. Now, it, it's difficult to really talk about it without giving too much away, but Nyssa plays a role. You kind of wonder, why the heck is she doing this? Isn't there another way to, I don't know how does one say, gather this information than doing what she's doing to get it? Um, she, she has a lot to do with Magnus Greel in this story. Magnus Greel is a politician, but he's also what, a mass-murdering sentencing judge, which would seemed an interesting combination because he's a diplomat on one part trying to stop a war, but he's also a man responsible for sending a lot of people to their deaths. That mm. seemed an interesting juggling act the story was doing and Nyssa being involved with this character, uh, you, you kind of wonder why she would have to do what she has to do in this story to get the information she's trying to mm. get. Uh, on the subject of Magnus Greel himself, it's, it was quite a surprisingly um, well-rounded, inter interesting character because obviously this is this is the prequel to to Talons, as you say. Um, so we already know uh, how he, how he ends up, and it's it's kind of interesting to see the story. And uh, who's the guy that plays it? Agnes Wright, uh, brilliant, brilliant performance, so, um, well well-rounded, and just yeah. I got surprisingly more from a Magnus Grill character than I, than I was expecting. It was quite it was quite a satisfying prequel story in that respect. Mm, definitely, I mean there is, there, you know, there, there are all the character. Well, the, the, the two major characters you expect to see that you know you're going to see in the Talons of Wang Chiang make make a make an appearance, and it's nice to get a bit of backstory as well. Mm. Um, although although you're right, I think Nisra going to lie back and think of Trakim was a bit much, but apart from that, it was great. What I found most interesting too was um, that that we knew it was going to be a story about Greel, but to a certain extent, he really wasn't the main character. What the Butcher of Brisbane does is, is introduces the uh, character of Doctor Doctor Findecker, mm. Findecker, yeah, who, who who seems to take on a lot of the uh, traits that we know that Greel will show during the Fourth Doctor story. He's the one that's experimenting with time travel. He's the one that's getting uh, affected by the Zygma radiation from the time yeah. travel experiments. He's the one feeding off the young and nubile women to keep himself alive while he completes experiments. It, it was interesting that it wasn't Greel that was doing that, but it was this it, 
it was this entirely new character, Findecker. Yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I mean, and, and, and even in, and even inside that, it's, it's as I say, it's nice to have an expansion of the story, rather than, you know, rather than it, rather than slavishly trying to impose some retrospective con- continuity in there. It's nice to think that now, before there was Grill, there was this dreadful man, Findecker. Yeah, wonderful stuff. What I found most interesting about the Butcher of Brisbane was not not, not the story itself, but how were they going to treat its I suppose, sequel story, the fourth Doctor story, Talons of Wen Chiang. Mark Platt must have had to uh, tread a very thin line with regards to what he could uh, bring across in Butcher of Brisbane because I think there would be nothing worse than breaking the continuity of Talons of Wen Chiang. And there were certain points, especially during episode four of Butcher of Brisbane, where I thought, well, the information that the Greel character's being uh, told in this episode, surely that would have an effect on his character in Towns of Wen Chiang. He knows who the Doctor is. He knows what a TARDIS is. He knows that the Doctor can time travel. And why isn't that reflected in the fourth Doctor story, Towns of Wen Chiang? Mark Platt is an established Doctor Who author, you know, for many, many years. And, I, and I'm sure he's done the story justice. But there were certain points in it where characters mentioned the Doctor in front of the Greel character or talked about the TARDIS or talked about various elements of Time Lord technology that I thought, well, wouldn't that then be reflected later on when the fourth Doctor meets Greel in Towns of Wen Chiang? That there seemed to be a few inconsistencies. It's safe to say when I, when I listened to it, I didn't... Uh, I wasn't listening to it with, with that ear I, and I was generally sort of taken, uh, taken away by the storyline. Uh, and perhaps if I came to a second listen, I, you know, and certainly having had this conversation now, uh, I, I probably would try and uh, uh, look at these things a bit closely. But on the whole, the story did... Uh, it, it took me away to the place that it, it intended to take me. Uh, and of all three, I think this was the... Um, this was the strongest and most satisfying for me. Uh, I, I quite like that it, it, it doesn't necessarily go where you expect that it will go. As, as soon as you, you introduce the, the time travel element, which I think is introduced as early as uh, sort of the, the late part of the... It may even be the cliffhanger for the first episode. Um, that, uh, in classic Doctor Who fashion, puts a whole different spin on, uh, on, on the story that's being told and leaves you thinking, oh, right, OK, well, where are we going to go with this? Uh, and the way that interplayed with the main story uh, you know, was, was quite nice. And, yeah, as I say, I, I think I got more out of this one than I did out of the preceding two. It was interesting for me that the Findector, the, uh, the Dr. Findector character, took on a lot of the traits, as I said, of the, the Greel character we know from Towns of Wen Chiang. The, the story tries to build up that the Greel character is this unhinged maniac that, of course, then morphs into what we know and love from the televised series. But I never really got that impression that much that he was a madman. Certainly the Findecker character was the one that was the lunatic, the one that was experimenting with time travel, was killing people to to, to draw on their life energy. I, I never really got the impression from Greel convincingly that he was this weird maniac that was going to then morph into what we see during Towns of Wen Chiang. Mm. Well, maybe, maybe it's a little bit like the Idavros series, you know, it, it, it's talking about, um, yeah, it, 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 it's telling more, telling us more about uh, what what went before. You know, it, you know, there's, I think Terrence Sticks talks about villains and he says that there's, it, there can, it, it's, either, it's either a rubber ducky moment where someone takes something away from you as a child, um, 
or, or, it's, or it's lost love or something strange like that. But no, it, it's it's good to hear um, the template from, from um, that Greel was drawn from. Uh, I, see, I think it's always good. I I always like to to have uh, a character fleshed out, and you know, we mentioned the uh, the Idavros series. It would, where you see how it would be feasibly possible for someone, for an ordinary person, to become uh, a monster, and too often in the in the classic series, you're just presented with a monster and you don't get the backstory. Uh, yeah, uh, and that's why I love the Cybermen so much because the show, the way the Cybermen story has been told throughout the show, you see how it would be possible for a race of people to become the Cybermen, and I, I find that infinitely more terrifying uh, when. You can see how a normal person could be turned into a monster. Don't get me wrong with Butcher of Brisbane. I, I really enjoyed it. I think a lot of what they did in the story was fantastic. Mark Platt fleshes out the very almost throwaway lines from Towns of Wen Cheyang and gives them a real basis in the story. I mean, all the stuff with uh, the you know the Sin character and the way that they interact with the uh, Singapore uh, delegation and the, the the stuff that's mentioned in Talons that's given a lot more life in Butcher of Brisbane and just the whole phrase Butcher of Brisbane is given proper reason in the story that we learn that the Findecker character is really is the Butcher of Brisbane. Well actually thinking about it there's a there's a couple of lines in the audio where the doctor says actually I can't go over there because I'm already over, I am already there. Um, there is, there is there, at one point, I'm, I'm convinced because I'm happy to cast my mind back for this one. Um, but there is a bit, of, there, there is a point at which the paradox is directly addressed, and he says, "Actually, I'm over on the other side of the hill, getting ready to march yeah, with the army." He, he does, yeah. He 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 makes mention of it because during the fourth Doctor story, he mentions he was there during the fall of Rejevic. So of course they have to make mention that there are basically three separate Doctors to a certain extent at points in in Greel's lifetime. Mm, that makes sense to me. Yeah, um, that that was it. Because when they escape, the doctor says, "Actually, I'm already there, but I can't, so I can't get involved. Cause I know what happens. I know what I've, I already know what I've done there." So yeah, it's interesting. Interesting. I I think the ultimate praise I can give for Butcher of Brisbane is that it makes me want to watch Towns of Wenchang again. It really does. It makes me want to, I suppose, enjoy this expanded story, which it now is all over again. Big finish with Ian and Michelle from across the Atlantic Ocean. Ian from the UK and Michelle from the United States. Reviewing Big Finish, sorting out the wheat from the chop for nonsense, saving you money on the ones that are not so good. Hello, this week Michelle and myself are looking at Trail of the White Worm and the Asiden Adventure. In these, the Doctor and Leela land in a small village where, as per usual, unusual things are afoot. Well, as you say, there are unusual things happening here. And one of the things I liked about it is the humor. Alan Barnes is a, is a real witty writer, and there's a lot of witty banter going on between uh, Tom Baker and Louise Jameson. They, they handle the material really well. Uh, most of it is, is quite funny, in my opinion, although occasionally I think it maybe gets a little too close to the line of being silly. But... There are other things I didn't like as well about this first part, but uh, let me hear what you thought. Well, to be honest, I found the humour to be uh, over the top. Uh, To me, this was a return to the zany Tom that we saw in, say, Hornet's Nest, where every other line he says is a quip, he doesn't take anything seriously. It's not as bad as Hornet's Nest, but I found it to be a real shame after the more controlled and dramatic performances we got earlier in the series. And it's not that I don't like the humour. We always like having some humour. 
but um, when everything is a quip and, and he doesn't seem to be taking anything at all, as a character doesn't seem to be taking anything seriously, to me it completely undermines the story. It wasn't so bad for Leela, actually. Leela was played a lot straighter, as you would kind of expect for her character. And I thought her character was, was pretty much in keeping with the original performance, and I, I enjoyed it. And I thought, actually, of the two, Leela's performance was the stronger. This ain't your business. It's very much my business, I told you. I am the Doctor. Well, well... What do you reckon done for him, Doctor? Well, I'm no pathologist, but I'd say we're looking at the work of a something or other. The you-know-what? I don't know about a you-know-what, but definitely a something or other. <sighs> ah, you don't know no. <laughs> I know the size of molecular extraction, the tissues suck dry at the atomic level. There isn't a you-know-what on this earth that kills in such a fashion. Eh? But... The trail, the slime trail of the you-know-what. He's nowhere around, which means, gentlemen, we're dealing not just with a you-know-what, but with a something or other. What I found was about four out of every five quips I enjoyed, and then the fifth one would have been just a step too far. And Leela did get some good quips in there. Maybe she didn't intend them, but there were certainly some some times when her lines uh, were humorous without belittling the character. I thought I thought she was well used in that sense. In terms of the broader story, uh, I thought that the cultural references were rather crowbarred in to try and set the period. The the way they start referring to Leela as being Pan's people and keep doing it. They are easily fooled, your hounds. Where's that devil? Look up, Mr. Carswarpen, the oak. It's, it's one of them strangers, yeah. One of them Pan's people off the telly, I swear. Mimi, Bella, push! I do not know these Pan's people, but you should know your dogs have lost the trail because their prey has doubled back on itself. Doubled back? It is out there again, beyond the trees, mind. It is not waiting for you. Whatever. You come down out of that tree, Pan's people, all you'll mind or I don't make you. Mm. No, I do not believe you will. And I think one of the reasons they had to crowbar in these sort of really sort of uh, leaden references to what time it was, was a lot of the characters didn't actually strike me as coming out of the 70s. Uh, You had this sort of country bumpkin and then this lady going around in a classic car and a colonial uh, ex-army person. And for me, they sounded much more like characters you'd get in a 20s drama. Uh, And for me, that was actually a bit of a clash. And I I think they, they had to keep dropping in these pop culture references to try and remind you you're in the 70s. Not that it really mattered what era you were in anyways. No, in fact, as, as you mentioned that, I got to thinking as we were preparing for this that I wasn't sure what era it was, and then I decided, well, it must be the 1970s, but some of the references you've mentioned mean absolutely nothing to me. I have no idea what Pan's People is. But it didn't really matter what time it was in. The other thing that I found really hard to deal with was this idea of the army guy with his own privately owned remote-controlled tank running around his estate shooting at people and bringing in a helicopter full of soldiers. I am going. Ah, 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 that way's the minefield, my dear. So if you don't want me to be picking bits of you off my lawn for the rest of the month... I must turn in the opposite direction. I would if I were you. Wait, what is that noise? What noise? Oh, I see it now. An armoured vehicle. Don't you worry about me to tell you my chieftain. No, it is an armoured vehicle. Chieftain Tech, my dear. Light out, or you'll get yourself run over. Well, tell the driver to stop. Not too bad, I'm afraid. Remote control, it is. Amazing what they can do. It all seems a bit unlikely when he's not some, you know, evil super genius mastermind. He's just 
and an ex-army guy holed up in a mansion. That character was another example of where I think the actor was performing the character well as written, which included being fairly over the top. Um, but the character himself became annoying to me, and, and unfortunately that was one of the characters that ran through the whole of both episodes. I kind of almost wished he'd gotten his come comeuppance earlier. Speaking of the ending, I thought it was extremely abrupt. I thought it came pretty much out of nowhere, and without giving anything away, that the, the way it happens, I thought completely invalidated the entire story to date, as, as all the, the threads that have been built up and the threat and the mystery are all essentially thrown to one side as an event happens which just leads us into the next story and this story almost might never have happened. I thought that was a real letdown on what was already a story I was struggling with and having a hard time with. So for me, Trail of the White Worm was a pretty poor story and I really didn't enjoy it all that much. And I found it fairly average. I thought it was all right and I, I think I did enjoy it, but you talk about kind of the abrupt ending and leading into to the next story, the Osiden adventure. Um, this idea of upturning your expectations follows through into that story. And I think while at first some of that was kind of clever, I think the story almost got too clever for itself with, with too many reveals and, and too many unexpected things happening. I think the plot got a little lost. Nearly all the characters that we were engaged with in White Worm have vanished. They've all just gone without any mention or look back at all. They're all gone. Except the one I found annoying. Exactly, the, the one that you didn't enjoy. And I, and I found that really quite tough. And then we get to the Kraals, who are the behind-the-scenes menace in this story. And to be honest, I think they come over as rather stupid Sonsarans, which is saying something. Uh, in fact, the mixture of being a bit stupid while constantly giving this sort of warmongering speeches reminded me of Strax, um, but without any of the humour that makes him so endearing. Yo, Joe man, have you destroyed the Doctor's associate? Afraid not, old man, she lost us in the woods. But look here, I've radioed my chaps in the chopper. Should be a piece of cake to find her and pick her off from the air. Good, you have shown initiative. Uh... Colonel Hugh Spindleton, Marshal Grimmauld, suck! Colonel Hugh Spindleton, is our Ford base prepared? Lampton Hall over there, ready for inspection, suck! Androids, bring the master. I see where you're coming from, and I, I do think the crawls weren't used as well as they could have. But in terms of the performances of the crawls, I liked them. I'd like to see the crawls come back, but I'd like to see them get their fair shot at a, a story that's really their own and where they can be more menacing. They came across as pretty ineffectual in this story, and, and you're right, they did seem a whole lot like dumb Sontarans. Leela spends most of the story charging about the place on a horse, and then we have the unhinged colonel that you were talking about earlier on, who is very, very over the top. But I actually didn't find him quite as jarring as I think you did because it's quite in keeping with the human bad guys from that era. For example, if you think of Harrison Chase, he, he was a very similar sort of over-the-top, maniacal bad guy. So I, I can kind of live with it, but I can't for the life of me see why the Kraals cooperate with him other than this sort of suggestion that they're each as stupid as each other, which <laughs> is a bit of an odd way for the, the, the villains to have uh, cooperated. Yeah! Come on, boy! Yeah! You don't have to instruct me. Concentrate on controlling this beast. It's that Leela and the Master. They're getting away. Well, I have something to stop them in their tracks. I, I, I'd rather you didn't do that, sir. Ah, what do you think you are doing, Spindleton? Do you want them to escape? Couldn't give two hoots for the blighters, sir. But that there horse is Pink Gin. 
He's a thoroughbred, Pink. Jen. Uh, granted, he's not quite red rum, but he's mine. They're not shooting at us. Why are they not shooting? Because they are fools and imbeciles. <laughs> I agree with what you said about being a villain of the time. I did feel with both these stories, like this was very much of the 70s. I could see it, but it wouldn't have been one of the classic stories of the 70s, and I'm not sure it's one of the classic stories here. Um, you mentioned the horse. There, there was another touch that I, I kind of liked. The horse was a reference to a real live horse that disappeared uh, in Ireland. And uh, I always like it when Doctor Who kind of wraps in these real-world mysteries. To come back to something you said earlier on, I did think that once the androids start doing what the androids do, the whole thing just descended into a farce and irritated me. Uh, especially as Tom is still doing his kind of audio gurning um, with his sort of silly asides all the time. And I know, I know he did some of that on screen in the era, but it wasn't every line as it is here. And there's a whole segment in here where things are flipping back and forth and there's this reveal and there's that reveal and it's a twist on top of a twist and the, the whole thing just became silly. Um, I think if I had to pick one of the two, I'd probably pick the aside and adventure over White Worm. But I think both of them were poor and especially given how much I loved the beginning of the, the Tom Baker series. And this is, you know, this is the season finale. This is the one we're being left with until uh, season two comes along. I found it to be a real letdown and was really quite disappointed. So for me, they were okay. You know, they, they, they were enjoyable. And I certainly uh, liked them better on the second listen, as, as is often the case. Um, but I tell you what, it's, you know, as we record this, it's January. And this month marks the release of the first in the second series of Fourth Doctor Stories, which will feature Tom Baker and Mary Tam. And so I'm really looking forward to that. And I think probably after one series, Big Finish and Tom Baker uh, are probably getting their feet under them and, and, and figuring out how this works with the Fourth Doctor. So I think we have good things to look forward to. Fingers crossed. Well, there we go. Another excuse for you to go out and spend your hard-earned work dollars on some big Finnish audio. Uh, check out these three stories, The Emerald Tiger, The Jupiter Conjunction, and The Butcher of Brisbane. Uh, certainly worth your while. Big Finnish produced some fantastic output, and these are no different. So until we meet again, gentlemen, Tom, pleasure to have you back. You should be back more often. Yeah, well, see you in a bit, man. <laughs> And Leeson, you're always here, so I'll, I'll see you next week, I suppose. And me, you can't, you, you can't get rid of me. I'll be here next week, every week, until you get sick of me. Bye-bye. <laughs> that was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.